Look at all these beautiful children. <clears throat> We're so thankful for them. We're thankful for you this morning. I hope you've had a great week. Father's Day is next Sunday, so I figured some of you may not be here, so I just will give two Father's Day sermons this week. So I want to do that. The role and the importance of a father is paramount. Do you realize, and these are not Christian statistics, by the way, these are CDC, 63% of youth suicides come from a fatherless home. 90% of all homeless and runaway youths come from a fatherless home. 85% of behavioral disorder children come from a fatherless home. 71% of all high school and school dropouts come from a fatherless home. 70% of juveniles in state-operated institutions and 75% of adolescent patients in substance abuse centers come from fatherless homes. 75% of rape, rapists motivated by displaced anger come from fatherless homes. And I could read on down the line about children outside of marriage 80 plus percent of people who in, in prison for violent crimes come from fatherless homes. As a matter of fact, some people have said, especially in America, that the greatest tragedy is the absence crisis of a father in the home. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, 18.3 million children, I read somewhere it was 21 million that is, one in four live without a biological step or adoptive father in the home. It's probably higher than that now. This was from 2019, if you can believe that. Half or more have no father in the home. Why is that so important? Well, sometimes people don't understand the role of a father. I hear people sometimes say, well, it doesn't matter if I'm home or not. Yes, it does. It matters very much whether you're home or not, especially as a dad. Well, you know, it's not worth all the fighting. Yes, it is. Better to have that and have a dad in the home than to have none. Look at the statistics yourself, folks. Why is this so critical? Well, I'm going to give you four metaphors as I open. Number one, the father is a mirror in the home. Like it or not, when you look at your dad you see a reflection of yourself. Did you realize that one of the reasons that daughters of bad fathers go out and get in bad relationships is because they are seeking a man in their life to approve them because their father has never done that? He's a mirror. Sometimes young men become so frustrated and aggravated because they're, they find their identity in their father and their father doesn't understand that he is basically a reflection of the family, and they get frustrated at that. But a dad is a mirror in the home. But not only that, he's also a thermometer. A thermometer reads the temperature in a room, tells you what's going on. And the father, if you want to know the spiritual temperature in a home, look at the dad. And by the way, if there's no dad there, you can pretty much figure what the spiritual temperature is. Is. Now, that's not taking anything away from women. You know, we love all our women. We're thankful for every mother out there. But let me tell you something, folks. The absence of a spiritual father in a home is devastating. 
It's crucial. And the Father determines the spiritual temperature. I mean, what's the house going to be like? Are we just going to live paycheck to paycheck and go here and there and sit and watch TV and flip our phones all the time? Or what are we going to do as a family? And by the way, it's so hard now, isn't it? You know how easy it is to sit down and let two or three hours pass just doing this? Every evening or perhaps, you know. What are we going to do? We're going to be a working family that contributes to society and we're going to have character and work ethic or what? The Father determines that. He's also a thermostat. You know, a thermometer reads the temperature, but the thermostat sets it. He leads it by example and he shows it. Not only that, he motivates his family and his children to do that. So he sets the temperature in the home. And then finally, the Father is the compass. This is, where is the family going? Well, the compass points you in the direction, and the Father is the one to do that. And when a father is absent, and there's no mirror, thermostat, thermometer, or compass in the home, there it is. This is why it's so important when he's gone as to why. Now, this morning, we're going to look at a story in the Old Testament of a man who was a high priest of God. His name was Eli, and it's a sad story of a father who offered service to God in an official capacity, but he didn't honor God. And one of the main reasons is because he served God in actions, but he lost them in raising his children. And that's so tragic, isn't it? But it happens. Honoring God means obeying his word first and foremost, and Eli failed at this, and it was demonstrated in his home. By the way, just to get the cat out of the bag, the hardest place to manage is the home. You can tell anybody else what to do with the job. You can tell them what to do here. You can bark orders out. You can do all this. The hardest place to manage relationships is in the home. And I think men struggle with this greatly. I think it's part of the curse, part of the fall. I think... The passive nature of a man is built in. I think you even see this before creation. When Adam is in the garden and Eve is there and the serpent comes and he tempts Eve, what does Adam do? He's standing right there beside his wife and lets her fall in sin. The Hebrew text says he was standing there with her and let her be deceived. And by the way, when she disobeyed God, nothing happened. When she gave to him and he partook, what happened? They both saw and knew they were naked and the world spun in sin. Paul says this in the New Testament. By one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. And from that point on with Adam and Eve, problems in parenting. Their first son, Cain, can you imagine this? Murdered his own brother. Tragedy in the home. The enemy has been after the home from the inception of the garden. And fathers pay the price. Here we open up God's word in 1 Samuel. We've come through a period of Israel's history through the book of Judges where it would parallel America. Every man does that which is right in his own eyes. And here we see the corruption that has went from the top leadership all the way down to the people and back up now to the high priest. And here we have a high priest from the order of Aaron back in the Old Testament time when God gave the law to Israel, the man who would stand before the people and represent God, the highest man in the land, 
appointed two sons who didn't know the Lord to do God's service and corrupted the nation. And this father did little to nothing. Look at the text. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan, the kettle, or the cauldron, or the pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Now stop for a minute, because if you don't know this, that doesn't mean anything to you. In the Old Testament law, God told the priest that when someone brought a sacrifice to be offered, that the priest was allowed to have a portion of the breast and part of the back thigh. But the fat would go to God, and the choice parts of the other offering would go to the person who came and sacrificed it. They would sit down and eat it with their family. But Eli had two worthless sons that had a three-pronged fork, and when somebody would bring a nice heifer or a steer up there they would stick it right in the t-bone and pull the fat and all the good meat out and take it for themselves they took god's portion and they took the person's portion and you know what happens when you eat fat don't you you get fat and if you keep reading on in this story eli there's some irony here though he has fattened himself so much to the point that he's now ready for the slaughter himself that sounds terrible, doesn't it? We don't preach too much about this today because we want to hear all blessing and no curse. We want to all think about God as feeling good. But let me assure you something, folks. I mean, if we don't do this, we don't teach the whole counsel of God. God only puts up with stuff for so long. Did you know that? And then God lowers the boom. And this is exactly what happens in this story the text goes on to say, Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come up and say to the man who was sacrificing, I'm going to read it like he would say it, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat, only raw. And if the man said to him, Well, burn the fat that belongs to God first, because that's why I brought this here, and then take as much as you wish, even the T-bone out of my port part if you want that, then the servant would say, no, you give it now, and if not, I'll take it by force. I told the first service, could you all imagine trying to build a church like this? Now, think about this. Back in the Old Testament times, Israel only had one place to go where the presence of God was, and that was in the tabernacle. You remember the story? They built the Holy of Holies inside that tent, and inside the tent was the Ark of the Covenant, which was symbolic of God's footstool. So if you read the Psalms, God was enthroned above the cherubim who oversaw the ark. Inside the ark were three things, the broken law, the manna, and then what? The blooming rod. The broken law symbolized God's Ten Commandments to the nation of Israel, which they broke. God put them in the ark. On top of the ark was a mercy seat. And once a year, the high priest would come in and take blood from a certain animal, offer it for himself, go into God's presence on the Day of Atonement, pour it on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant and would make atonement for the whole nation for intentional sins. In other words, if you did something you knew you weren't supposed to do, there was not a sacrifice that you could bring to cover that. 
So you had to wait till the Day of Atonement to go in there and let the priest offer the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement and you would stand outside by faith trusting that what he did would cover your intentional sin. And God would be pictured as looking down on the Ark of the Covenant through the mercy seat into the broken law. And what would God do? He would forgive the sin. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And that's why blood had to be shed. And this high priest is the one who would do that. And so here's this man who has these sons when people come to give their offering that treat people like this. The Bible says, Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Now if you keep reading the story, this went on for years and years and years. You know, God is so patient. Did you know that? He is so patient. He allows people and nations to go on in sin and go on and God just patiently waits while people are in their rebellion. He doesn't immediately judge all the time. But he allows them time to either love their sin or to stoke up judgment. But one of the two will happen. Later on in the story, in chapter 2, verses 22 and 23... Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all of Israel. He kept hearing. It has the idea that, you know, people were emailing him and texting him. Do you know what your sons are doing? We've got them on video. These guys are rats. You're the high priest. You appointed them. What are you going to do about it? He just kept hearing this over and over again. And how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of the meeting. And that doesn't mean they were taking a nap. And he said to them, notice this, he just said to them, Now why are you doing such things, boys? I hear of all your evil dealings with these people. I hear. You say, well, what should he have done? What should he have done? Well, you would think that he would remove them from service, wouldn't you? But... No, I hear what you're doing, boys. Now, y'all ought not be doing that. You're grown men. You know better, and I'm responsible. Can't you see this? Grandfather trying to raise his children. No, my sons, it's not a good report that I hear of the people of the Lord spreading abroad. And then he gives them some really good advice. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Notice the text now and be real perceptive. But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now hold on for just a minute, because we love easy Christianity, don't we? We say, well, you know, we've got God all figured out, and God's supposed to be nice. You know, I always love to hear people say, well, how can God be good if there's so much evil in the world? You know, don't you love that philosophical question? And I, I enjoy some philosophy. I only have you know, just a little bit. But I like to turn that question around. How can God be so evil as you say he is when there's so much good in the world? You know, I, there is a lot of good in the world. It's all in how you see it. 
So there's some great mystery here. Don't just point out how can God be good and allow evil. How can God be evil and have so much good? Now you figure that one out, okay? I'll, we don't have time to do that this morning. But the bottom line is here, God was allowing these men to not listen to the voice of their father after the years of neglect because God was going to judge them. And if you keep on reading the story, you know what happens? They carry the Ark of the Covenant out into war thinking that they're going to win and they're all stoked up because they have the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulder and God lets them all die. They all get killed. The two boys... And then they run back and tell the father, and you know what happens to him? The text says he was so big and fat when the man came back and told him, he fell backward and broke his neck, and he died as well. Terrible, isn't it? You say, boy, you picked some wonderful passages to preach on Sunday. Here's my point, folks. Sometimes we sit back, even in our own nation, and we look out and say, where in the world is God? I mean, what has happened here? We're, we're celebrating things on the streets of D.C. out in the middle of immorality. Now, that's what I have to call it because that's what God calls it. And I'm not here to intentionally offend anyone. I'm here to preach God's word and not stroke anyone's fancy. But what people celebrate today in LGBTQIA movement, God calls immorality and perversion. Now, don't hate the messenger because he's sharing the message. That's what it is. But public leaders out in the street celebrating this. And by the way, they took God's flag, the rainbow. They took it and put it on a flag. Do you know what the rainbow represents? I need to preach a whole message on this. The rainbow came about because of sexual perversion on the earth in Genesis chapter 6. And God came down and judged and then he gave the rainbow to say that he'll never flood the earth again. And that was his sign he would put in the sky after a rain to show that I'll never completely destroy the earth by water again. Isn't it ironic that that rainbow was taken and then transposed and put as a sign of quote-unquote freedom and liberty? So the promise of God not to judge that is now put on a flag to celebrate it. I'm, I'm telling you folks, listen closely. Every place you look in the Word of God, when rampant immorality was that way, God judged. Sodom and Gomorrah, the flood, and there are other places. How long will God wait? How long? And I'm on a rabbit trail now, so I just will go down it for a minute. But America basically thinks that we're impenetrable. I mean, we have our computers, right, and our technology and our military, and nobody could ever defeat us because they haven't done it since we've been founded. So we pompously believe that we are impregnable and no one could ever invade our country and destroy our leadership and so forth. I want you to come up real close. That's what Israel thought. But you can't go on in sin as a person or as a nation and think you're going to get by with it forever. It is not going to happen. Judgment is coming one day. And we have to mark it down. It's coming. And it came for the house of Eli. It's going to come for America. And it will come for our individual lives if we keep shaking our fist at Almighty God. 
Romans chapter 1, the danger sign is when you can enjoy your sin, you're in big trouble. God gave them up to a reprobate mind. And that's what he did to his, Eli's sons. Now, what I want to do today is share one teaching point and then a couple of things about Eli's life and then help you in case you were ever a parent like that or maybe you were impacted by a poor father. So when you come to a passage like this in the Old Testament, you say, well, how do I know how to apply this to my life? Well, biblical narrative are stories that tell us truths that do not directly say this is what you must do. A narrative is a, a story that reveals truth about God and people indirectly. There's not a principle in there. So what you have to do is you have to look for, and it is your responsibility as a reader to look for, what is this saying about God and how God handles things and what's it saying about those people, and then what can I learn from that? And that's why Romans says all these things were written for our admonition. This story has practical implication for your life and your parenting and my life and my parenting. And it's rather staggering. Now, let's look at two aspects of Eli's life. Number one is professional life. Professional life. It was outstanding. Eli's name means my God. Jehovah is high God. He is the high priest from the tribe of Levi. He was a judge in Israel and had the highest place of authority. He lived at Shiloh, which was a dwelling that adjoined the temple. And if you looked at him from the outside in his academic and work career, he was viewed as a, as a success. However, as is true in most cases when you get inside of businessmen and successful people in society, when you penetrate down inside and get past their office desk into their family life with their wife and their children, you often find out that it's a total disaster. They can run corporations. They can run universities. They can run job sites. They can run heavy equipment. They can run all kinds of things, but they can't run their family. And the reason is because a wife and a child doesn't run like an organization. It doesn't run off of policy, procedure, and rules. It runs off of something else. And a machine runs off of joysticks and levers, and you're in control, but a child doesn't run that way. You can't do it. So his professional life was outstanding, but his personal life was outrageous. Now let's look at two things about Eli's fatherhood. Eli, first of all, was spiritually weak, because he honored his children more than God. Look in chapter 2, verse 29, what the text says. This, By the way, this is some irony here. If you read this story in verse 27, the man, a man of God came to Eli. He's an unnamed man in the Old Testament. And if you're ever reading the Old Testament and you just come upon a phrase that says, and a man of God, and it doesn't tell his name, that should be a little flag that stands out to you and says, oh, something's going on here. So listen to this irony. A man of God, who is unnamed, comes to the man of God, who is the high priest, to tell him what God had to say to him. Because he couldn't hear it. And this man came, and in verse 29, he says, Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons above me, 
by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Why? Honoring your sons above me. He was spiritually weak. How did he honor his sons above God? Well, just a couple of things. First of all, he placed their physical needs ahead of their spiritual needs. Chapter 1, verse 3 tells us that they were appointed priests by their father. But chapter 2, verse 12 tells us they did not know the Lord. Now, how is this going to work? You're going to serve to teach people God's law and you don't even know God. Don't you think maybe you should have looked somewhere else instead of just passing it down the line? He was like the average parent in American churches. He was more concerned about his children's career and future than he was about their spiritual life and relationship with God. He made sure that they had a good education, a good paying job, and he wanted to make sure that they had more than he did in this life. And so he promoted them to be priests in the tabernacle. The biggest curse, by the way, placed on children today is giving them everything they want and not making them earn it. And let me go ahead and get in trouble while I'm here. This is why restaurants aren't open on Sunday. Because they can't find anybody to work. Because when you're willing to give people more money than they make by going to a job, why would they ever show up? And this is why there's a crisis that's getting ready to hit unless something major happens right here in our neighborhood and all around the United States. It can't happen like that. And parents try to raise their children the same way. The biggest curse placed on children is giving them everything they want and not making them earn it. Children will never be taught character by receiving handouts their whole life. You hear people say all the time, well, I just want to see my kids have more than I did. Can I ask you the greatest question in the world? Why? Why do you want to see that? Because if you give them what they don't earn, it makes them unthankful, unappreciative, it causes a materialistic and a self-centered attitude. And by the way, that happens naturally. And when you stoke it full of dollar signs, it gets even worse. Did you know that? I could stand up here and tell you stories, but I'll spare you. But when you train your children to focus on the physical instead of the spiritual, it results in failure every time. Mark it down. Mark it down. When we teach our kids to focus on the physical more than the spiritual every time. Sports over church. Now, I might get in trouble here, but let's let it be where it is. I'm not being nasty. But when we as parents will focus on sports more than we do church and spiritual things, and we wonder why when our kids go and leave, they don't ever come back to church because it was never a priority for mom and dad. Sandy Perkinson came in this morning. She had gallbladder surgery this week. I'm going to embarrass her. I don't know where she's at, but she's got to be somewhere. Oh, there she is. She said, you know why I'm here? I'm a Jean Brumfield, who, by the way, was one of the founders of Trinity, had her gallbladder taken out on a Thursday, and she made it to church on Sunday. She said, you know what? If I'm a Jean could do it, I felt like I could. She didn't realize. She told me that between the services, and here's what I realized. We have lost commitment from people like Imogene Brumfield. Imogene was going to come to church because she wanted to hear from God, and she knew it was important, and she put a priority on it, and even if it cost her personally a little bit, she was willing to do that. And you know what? 
Don't tell me church attendance isn't important because it rubbed off on Sandy Perkinson and she remembered it years and years later. I'm a jeans with Jesus right now. So yes, what you do in life does matter. Sports over God. What about education? You know, causing our children to focus just on education or perhaps a home or a vehicle or this or that or clothes. Listen to what God's Word says about putting the physical above the spiritual. They who sow to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. You sow to the flesh, you're going to reap flesh and what comes from it. The second way that this man failed was by failing to discipline his children when they needed corrected. Chapter 3, verse 13 reads this, And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. He didn't stop them. He didn't put them out. He just went over and said, Now, boys... Now, boys, y'all are going to have to stop that. Now, you know that's not good. We're getting a bad name for our family. Y'all quit that. Instead of going uh, out of here. Out of here. By the way, do you know there has to be boundaries in parenting? And when this is why enablement, they've come up with this great psychological thing, and we've sold books by the millions called boundaries. And when parents do not implement boundaries... On their children's life, this is exactly what happens. They run over the parent, dominate the parent, and you end up becoming an enabler. And this is exactly what Eli was. He was enabling his children to continue and to continue and to continue their life and their pattern of sin. And God held him accountable. You know why? Because Eli never said no. No. You are not going to do that. By the way, how do we know that? Look in uh, chapter 2, verse... Well, we already read it. 12 through 17. He, their actions reflect. Eli was a partaker of his chi- children. He got fat off of what they were doing to the people. Look in verse 29. But we also know this by the way that they responded to their father's words. Chapter 2, verse 25, they didn't even listen to him. Now, can you all see the old wise high priest... Back in chapter 1, telling Hannah, do this, Hannah. She says, yes. He goes home and tells his sons, stop doing that. Be quiet, old man. We'll do what we want. Now, can you all imagine your grown children coming and saying that to you? Imagine this. Proverbs 19.18 says, Chasten your son while there's hope, and let not their souls spare for the crying If you wait until your children are older to discipline them, it's too late. Adolf Hitler used to say, give me your child until he's five. I'll give him back to you for the rest of his life because I own him. In the same way, that's true in our own life. If we fail to discipline our children when they're younger and we don't train them that we are the parent and they are the child, when they become older, they'll be hellions. And by the way, you know, Parenting used to run this way. We're going to go to the store and you're going to behave in the store while I push you around in the buggy. And if you throw a fit in the buggy, not only are you going to get it in the store, 
and you're not going to get anything except a big spoonful of vinegar. But when we get home, it's not going to be fun either. And you know what? You have to come through on your word. But now I see parents totally rearranging their schedule. Oh, we can't go there because uh, Junior won't behave. The reason Junior don't behave is because Dad doesn't make him. You say, well, oh, boy, you're, you're terrible. Well, all you who frown, you will be parents one day. And those of you who are parents know I'm telling the truth. And those of you who are grandparents absolutely know that I'm missing some of the things that I should be saying right now. But let's get it down to where it matters. Discipline and authority come from the home. Your number one responsibility as a parent is an authority figure in the home, not a friend. You become a friend after they learn to respect you. But nevertheless, that's it. And Eli had soft-pedaled his responsibility of disciplining his children, and they grew up, became older, and turned out to be rebels. Why? Because he had traded the Mosaic Law and the Word of God for Dr. Spock. I wonder if Spock printed his book back then. Did you know that children who wear shirts no fear are actually saying something? Because they have perhaps Eli for a dad. Now, if my children wear no fear or put no fear on the back of their car, they do it on their own because their father has told them, you better fear God. Now, I understand no fear, like when you go in the military and you have to go into battle. You have to have no fear. You have to have common sense, and you have to go in and realize you might have to pay the price. But no fear, like going out like you're the ultimate authority? This is what Eli's sons were doing. They couldn't tell the difference between proper behavior and improper behavior. And also notice that not only was Eli... Uh, negligent he was also blind he looked for faults in others family but couldn't see them in his own i don't have time to develop this but if you go back in chapter one hannah came up and she was praying to god and she was bawling and he said get out of here you worthless drunk woman and she said i'm not drunk i'm praying my heart's broke now hear me for a minute he could see the faults in someone else in their family but he was unwilling to see them in his own you know, how many people in ministry and in leadership are exactly that way? By the way, one of the qualifications of a pastor is he has to manage his own house well, having his children in subjection. That doesn't mean his children are perfect. That doesn't even mean they're all believers. Did you know that? I know pastors who have raised their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and the child grew up unsaved. You say, well, how can that be? That's a totally another sermon. I'll preach on that sometime. How can bad parents have good kids and good, good parents have bad kids? But that happens. And here is Eli, blinded by his own family. And there was, this was the result. His children rebelled against him. Now, I listed here ten reasons children rebel against fathers let me just share a few with comments and the rest are self-explanatory first of all children rebel against their parents because their father doesn't fulfill his promises 
You know, when you start your children off at a young age, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, and you don't do that, boy, that hardens the child. I can remember someone coming to my house telling my kids, I'm going to come and we're going to do this. And they didn't come and do it with our boys. And after about the second time of that, they learned, I don't trust them. You know, obviously, as a parent, you're sitting there going, I really didn't want them doing that anyway, and I knew what was going to happen because I know their character. But here's my point. It's something for someone else to do that to your child, and you watch the reaction. But when you as a parent do it, it can breed rebellion. Second of all, because a father doesn't admit when he's wrong. Oh, boy, this is a big one. Dads especially. Men, listen to me, men struggle saying I was wrong, especially to their children. I was wrong. I should not. I was I totally missed the mark. By the way, when you have multiple children running around and you go in and see some kind of tragedy like something spilled all over the place or something misplaced, first thing you do as a dad, you just, you just start accusing. Who did that? Well, was such a, and you start going down the line. You just grab one, and then by the time you interrogate and all the frustration angers out, you realize you blame the wrong one. And heaven forbid if you ever spank the wrong one. And then you have to do what? You have to go and, hum, and say... Oh, son, I was, I, I was so ag- aggravated. I jumped the gun and I accused you wrong. You were not the one. And then you have to do what number three says. Uh, I'm on down. Number three, because a father refuses to ask for forgiveness. You know, it's one thing to say you're wrong. It's another thing to ask for forgiveness. I was wrong. I shouldn't have pulled you out and whipped you. You weren't the one that did that. That is totally different than going... I was wrong, I shouldn't have done that, and I beg for your forgiveness. You were not the one that deserved that. Now, I'm sure you deserved it for something else that I missed, but now, I was wrong on that one. I, see what I'm doing there? Don't do that. That's not what you do. It's kind of like people get a speeding ticket. You know, they fuss. Oh, speed. Just think back the day before, you should have got ten. But the father doesn't ask for forgiveness. Now, let me be serious here for a minute. You want to destroy your child's soul? Be an arrogant father or mother. This applies to women too, by the way, who never admit you're wrong. And you will cause your child to totally rebel against you. Totally. You know, I shared earlier, this is kind of developing a picture of a real man. And by the way, I need to say this in America. A real man is not the guy who comes out of the gym. It's all buff and slicked off and, you know, shaved all the hair off his chest and got a sleeve. Walks out into his nice, big, shiny sports car and, you know, turns his radio up and bumps down the street. And all the girls look at him and go, ooh, if you're, listen to me, I'm serious. You, you all better hear me for a minute. If you are a girl and you are attracted to a guy like that, you are about to get in a re- involved in a relationship with a selfish, narcissistic, egomaniac guy. Run. Because he's going to care more about his car than he cares about you. Now, let me tell you something. I'm being as serious as a heart attack here. 
you better look for flags. And that's not a flag, that's a siren. Number five, because a father gives too much freedom. There's a balance between fatherhood about being too strict and too free, right? Just letting the kids do whatever they want, never helping the, the wife enforce boundaries, just run all over the place, run all. Dad can't do that. Number six, because a father rejects his own parents. I share this, but I share it truthfully. Watch how you talk about your parents to your children because it causes your children in some ways to rebel. And I know there's other cases and so forth. I'm not getting here, but I'm just saying be cautious. Let's just say, for example, that you as a parent had another parent that was involved in a divorce. And all you do to your child is talk about how worthless your father was. And you just pound that in your children. I'm just trying to tell you what happens. You do that for so long and your child begins to see you as a complainer and a this and a that and a that and they lose respect for you. So watch dashing your parents in front of your children. Number seven, because a father does not love his wife. Your kids will, will rebel against you if they see you screaming at your wife, demeaning her, saying negative things about her, cutting her down, acting like you're the superior and you're the head and you're the boss and you're going to do it this way. And They'll watch how you treat your, your wife, which is their mother, and inside they'll hate you. I, I can tell you counseling stories about young boys who stood there and said, I was just a little boy and I watched my dad push my mom around. And if I was big enough, I'd have went and got something. And I'd have just went over and attacked him, beating on my mommy. I wish I could let you all hear some of the things that are heard. And you sit there and you hear that and you go, you hear the anger coming out of this now grown adult about a flashback memory in their childhood. Number eight, because a father neglects God's word. Huge right here. You know, how do we ever expect our children to love God's word, be involved in church if we're not faithful? And I mean committed faithful. I get it when people can't come to church. I get that. But, but you know, you can't make it a convenience. It's got to be a priority. You've got to put it on your calendar. You've got to put it on your calendar like you do everything else. And when something comes up, I don't care what it is, this is our priority unless it's a death or a funeral or a wedding. We are going to worship. By the way, I know people don't like hearing things like this because they think it's negative, but let me, let me share something with you. You need this. I need this. Number nine, because a father sacrifices his family for his career. The most important thing in our life as parents is our relationship with our spouse and our relationship with our children. Folks, listen to me. In just a few years, your job is going to give you the boot and you're going to be number 22863 on the registry and they'll have you replaced within a week. I am telling you this. Listen to me. You are a number and you will say goodbye to your job and your career one day, don't find your identity in your job. Find it in your wife and in your children. And you will never regret that. 
I have seen many families destroyed because of moving it from a good church and a good job for a pay raise. And I could tell you about several. Tragedy came. It isn't all about the paycheck. Some things are worth a whole lot more than money. And number 10, because a father disciplines his children in anger. You know, as a dad, don't ever wait till your child causes you to blow up. As a matter of fact, you shouldn't even do it. This is a whole other sermon. But don't ever just start flailing on your child. Your child will remember that and it will cause them not to like you and they will certainly not respect you. Now, a man by the name of Josh McDowell came up with something. Now, I'm sharing this to help you. He came up with something because he kept seeing this big split between parents and their children and why they would behave and so forth and so on. And this is what he came up with. It's called the relationship pyramid. And if you look up in the very top, there is a triangle that it's its, its own up there. It stands on its own. Because what we see in people is only their behavior. Okay, so as a parent, the only thing that you can see in your child's life is your behavior. And as a child, the only thing you can see in your parent's life is their behavior. But under this is kind of like an iceberg. Just a little bit peaks out at the top. That's what you see. But everything that's under the bottom is what holds it up. And so how is a person's behavior formed? Well, it's formed off of values. Well, what are values? Values means a worldview. In other words, I am going to open the door for this elderly lady walking into the supermarket because of this reason. Okay, what are the reasons? A, I saw it on TV. Uh, B, my dad told me that it was the right thing to do. Uh, or I'm supposed to respect my elderly. Are y'all following this? Or God says that you're to... Or you got the other option. It says, I'm not opening the door for her. If she, you know, she get in herself. If not, I'll get in front of her. And I don't have to stand in the line wait for her to figure out how to use her credit card. There's two worldviews operating. Values. And then, how are values formed? How are worldviews formed? Well, they're formed off of beliefs. How do you view the world? Is it, is it coming from a secular side? In other words, take God completely out of the equation? And I just view life as it happens and this and that and read it out of the education books and get it from Harvard University and that's how you treat people and live. Princeton, Yale, you know, those were seminaries, by the way. Did you know that? They were founded in the United States of America to train pastors to handle the Word of God. And this is what happens when you turn secular and you take God's name out of it. You turn into Harvard where you teach immorality and hatred of this and that and love of sin. I can't say it any clearer. But beliefs are formed based upon some type of a system, whether it's secular, whether it's God-centered and biblical. Those are formed. But listen to the key here. Listen to the key. Josh McDowell said he struggled for years when he worked with parents and young kids, and he said, I could not understand the missing link between a child's beliefs, values, and behavior and how they adopted that. Are you ready for this? This is deep stuff here. 
He said, the reason they turn out the way they do is because of the relationships that they form. And this should encourage us as parents that as our kids grow, what, what is our responsibility as a parent? It is to build relationships with our children so that we can pass on our beliefs, our values, and so that it will ultimately impact their behavior. But if you don't have a relationship there with your child where you can do that, they will go somewhere else that they have a relationship, and that will be the result. Now, are y'all letting me tie this together? Let's go back to the beginning. What is the crisis in, a, in America and the world? Fatherlessness. Why do people act like they do? By and large, because of the lack of relationship with the father and the child. And therefore, they have adopted the relationship and the values and the behavior of another relationship that they've formed. And Josh Medell said this is critical. Now, let me share this very quickly. Way too much information today, I realize that. I'm giving you way too much. But here's the bottom line. Parenting is not set in stone. The way you treat your children from birth to two and two to five and five to ten and ten to fourteen and then fourteen and up, it all changes. And about the time you think you've got it figured out, it takes on another form. And let me tell you something. If you want your children to hate you, treat your 18-year-old like, you like you treated them when they were seven. They, they will not be able to stand it. And they'll leave. And as parents, we have to grow with our children. You move from a, an authoritarian from zero to five. You are an authoritarian. Did you hear me? From zero to five. You are the dictator in that home. You tell that child what's right and what they're going to do and what they're not going to do, and if they don't do it, there's consequences. And you teach them there is authority and responsibility. And following that on up, you give them a little bit of slack, but you still hold the rope and you pull them in when it's necessary. And then when they get into their teenage years, you give them a little bit of slack and you let them go out and feel the teeth of wrong. Just a little to know that sin hurts. But when they become an adult, you've got to be at the other end of the rope as their friend and the one who listens to them. <clears throat> you can't no longer go... I watch this sometimes with parents, <clears throat> their older children. They'll be lighting into them. That older child's in there going, I can't wait till I get out of here. I hate this place. Don't like that. Don't. And you're just sitting there going, now, now, sometimes they need to hear it and don't like it. I'm not saying that. <clears throat> but things go down a little bit better with sugar <clears throat> than they do vinegar. How do you overcome a terrible father? People say all the time, I have had a horrible relationship with my father. I don't know what to do. Well, let me share four things quickly here. Four truths that will help you overcome a poor father. Number one, you have to accept reality. It is what it is. You can't change it. it, it that's just what it is. And you have to accept that and not try to paint a cartoon. This is reality. Number two, you have to choose holiness over healing. I, I see people going around all the time 
trying to completely fix the results and ramifications of a poor relationship with their father. You can't do that. Only the Holy Spirit of God can do that in your life. A counselor can't do it. A friend can't do it. You see, what you do is you accept the, the consequence. You, it, it, that's what happened. And now, Lord, because of what happened in my life, this is who I am. But Lord, I want you to make me a man of God and I'm going to break that cycle with my children. That may have happened to me in my childhood, but I stand here today before you, oh God, committing myself as a man of God. My child will not go through that. By the way, I was privileged to speak at a men's conference one time and this is what we spoke on. I'm going to break the cycle. Choose holiness over healing. What a fine young man. <clears throat> God wants to transform you. Number three, this is life changing. Extend forgiveness. You know, you may have had a horrible father, terrible dad that did. You cannot carry that the rest of your life. You have to extend forgiveness. If you don't, you'll never experience transformation. Because what you don't forgive, you'll pass on to your children. I told the story earlier of someone in my previous ministry engagement <clears throat> that came to me because they had a horrible relationship and they just couldn't get over it. it. They were in bondage. You know what it means to be in bondage? It means that something captivates your thoughts your emotions, your will, and it's just hanging with you everywhere you go. You're in bondage to that. This person was in bondage to a terrible relationship. And I said something that someone shared with me. I said, go write a letter. Tell them what they did to you and why you're so hurt and angry. And then at the bottom of it, you write out that you're going to forgive them. They said, well, this person's dead. I said, that's fine. Where are they buried? Out in the cemetery. I'll go with you. Walked out over top of the gravestone, and this person read a note to that person, and I'm going to tell you something. It was, it was something else. And they sobbed and they cried, but they got to the end of that letter, and this is what they said. Even though you did this to me, I forgive you. I choose to forgive you. Later on, that person said that it was the hardest thing they ever had to do, but it was the best thing they could have ever done. Because, listen, folks, what you don't forgive, you will pass on. And then, finally, number four, wait on the restoration of the Lord. You know, sometimes people long for the relationship with the Father that they've always heard about, dreamed about, or saw in a friend. But that is the relationship that our Lord gives to us. There's a song, He's a good, good father because it's who He is. And we are loved by Him. You want to know how you can know that your father loves you? Because He sent His Son Jesus to die for your sin so that you could have eternal life. Even though you are the one who sinned against the Father and you are the one who is at fault in that relationship because your sin separated you from God. Because He loves you, He made a way for you to be His child by faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's called the gospel. 
And when we believe the gospel, the Spirit of God lives inside of us, and He is the one who enables us to be the kind of father that God wants us to be. Now let me say this with all of my heart. I know I shared a lot. And I know this is a lot of information, but it is so true. We should leave here transformed in many different ways, but most importantly, if, if there's something in our life that needs to be changed and God pointed it out today, do it. If you need Christ as your Savior today, do that. But I think every man here, and I think even every woman, should bow our heads right now and pray that God would make us the best father that we could be. Would you join me in doing that just right where you are? I'm not going to ask you to come up front. But I just want to pray with you this morning because I am praying for myself as well. Let's pray together. Father, we know our imperfections better than anyone else knows them. And we as men, Lord, know the weakness that we have and the struggle that we have to live for you. I pray, O oh God, that you would make us men of God who have hearts of humility and yet strength, of forgiveness and restoration and love for our children and our wives. And Father, help us to be a man of priority, placing them in the right places. Help us not to chase the career, but to chase our family and our children and invest in them and spend time with them. And Father, may your word transform us. And I pray for anyone here today, Father, that may have had a terrible experience growing up as a child, perhaps with an Eli-type father or worse. Lord, they're in bondage today. I pray that you will unshackle the chains and help them to leave here transformed because they will choose forgiveness and restoration. We know this can be done because Jesus and the Holy Spirit of God are in the life-changing business. And we thank you for that today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.